Our guest during the second hour uh, brings us to war present rather than war past. We talked about the Civil War during the first hour, and Andy McNabb um, is a veteran British soldier, a British fighter. He served for 18 years in the British military forces, 10 of those years in SAS. That's right, yeah. What, what does SAS stand for? Special Air Service. Service. And it's really the British version of Special Forces, or rather our Special Forces are the American version of SAS. Exactly, yeah. What, what happened was uh, um, uh, Delta Force was, was formed on the model of the Special Air Service, mm -hmm. as is most of uh, the Western world Special Forces. And uh, um, there was a uh, number of guys who came over to, to the Special Air Service in the UK done our selection, which takes about six months, served with the Special Air Service, and then brought the idea back to the States and sold it to the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. and then Delta Force was formed. Well, now, what is the idea? How was SAS defined? What has its history been? Well, its history um, uh, really started in the, in the Second World War, in the, uh, in, in the campaign in North Africa. And uh, there was a, a young captain called uh, Sterling who was injured at the time in hospital and was just coming up with ideas how to how to attack the Germans and as opposed to sort of massive forces um, why not just get small gangs of people who can then get behind the lines and create the maximum amount of damage with the minimum amount of risk and um, what we're all about is small numbers um, covert operations to get into a place do the job as quickly as possible and get out as quickly as possible um, that's obviously to for our own survival, but also psychologically for the enemy. They don't know when it's going to happen um, and how it's happened. And certainly, you know, if you look at uh, campaigns like the Falklands War, um, the Special Air Service, one of their tasks was to go forward into the uh, Argentinian trenches and to um, uh, capture officers for, for interrogation. And it was nothing about going in there with firepower. What it was about was getting into the trenches with stealth grabbing these people without anyone knowing and taking them back. So in the morning, the Argentinian soldiers are saying, well, where, where's their command? Uh, and psycho psychologically, it's, you know, it's, it's just as powerful as shooting a gun. What was your first special mission as a member of SAS? Um, the, the first uh, um, sort of job, we call them jobs. It's, uh, it, within the Special Air Service and, and in, in fact, within Delta Force, the, um, people don't wear rank. Everybody calls each other by their first names um, because it's very much on, on self-discipline. You know, there's no marching. Very rarely you'll wear uniform when, you, when you're around camp. Um, but you've got to be kept in pretty sharp physical condition, don't you? Absolutely, but everything's at a personal level. The, the, the thing is that you volunteer to go into Special Forces and the day you can't perform, well, that means you don't want to be there. So then you're kicked out. Um, if you get caught um, drink driving, um, there's, there's a lack of discipline. So they don't want you. Um, so it's, it, the motivation is very personal. Mm -hmm. um, and so your first mission was what? Was, was in Southeast Asia. I, 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 I passed the selection and, and uh, joined a special air service on a Tuesday, what we call getting badged, where you, you, know, you get your bearing and say, welcome. You know. And then on Thursday, I found myself on a plane to join my squadron. Um, in uh, Southeast Asia, in, in a jungle, um, involved in operations of stopping some uh, communist insurgents coming in uh, from the north of the country. Now, in what country was that? Uh, that I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> really? <laughs> so a, a lot of this remains secret. Yeah, the, a lot of the the, the, the nature of uh, of all special forces work, uh, by definition, will will um, yeah. uh, remain covert. Obviously, there's huge things that happen, very much like the Gulf War, where you know it's, it's advertised on very much like uh, what was happening in Afghanistan. 
Um, but a lot of the jobs, because they're, they're small and they're isolated, um, are covert in the beginning and they remain covert. Where I know that you played a very significant role uh, and led some special forces operations in the Persian Gulf War. But what else were you involved in before that war erupted? Um, well, we, we, the different jobs that we get involved in, we call them options. And mm -hmm. we, there'll be a green option, which is very much like uh, uh, you'd wear a military uniform. And uh, the sort of options I got involved in uh, were in places, uh, as we just discussed, Southeast Asia, which has been a jungle environment, um, trying to stop uh, certainly that job to stop communist insurgents. I spent some time uh, in the the African bush. Um, uh, the UK has a, has a, a number of uh, uh, defence alliances with certain African nations. Mm -hmm. And there was some trouble with um, uh, the Angolan troops coming into the north of Botswana. Uh -huh. um, so as part of the UK's obligation, I spent some time uh, in Africa. Um, I spent quite a while in, in Colombia on what was called the first strike policy before Plan Colombia, the American yes. Plan Colombia. Going after and narcotics. Uh, exactly, yeah. And the, the idea was is, is that if we can find the drug manufacturing plants mm -hmm. um, in, in the rainforest and destroy them at source, hopefully then we can slow down the... Uh, the, the movement of drugs. And did your unit do some of that? Yeah, lots Destroyed of it. Destroyed drug operations? Yeah, lots of it. Not having that much effect on the overall mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, the overall problem, but we knew that wouldn't happen. It was just a matter of getting down there. Uh, it, it was an American-financed operation, um, and, the, and the UK was part of that, and eventually that, that developed into Plan Columbia. Then you wind up in uh, the Persian Gulf area, as we're getting ready for that war, after Iraq has taken uh, Kuwait. Uh, how soon did you go in there, in fact? Uh, well, myself, I, I, I didn't actually uh, get into the, the, the area until after the, the new year. Purely there was, during that, that summer before, there was the mm -hmm. big military build-up. But there's no reason for special forces to be there um, uh, for, that, for that time. You just pop the, in when they need Because you, you get in when you're needed. Yeah. And um, so I got in there in, in the January. And um, on January the 22nd, that's when I, I, I took the team in and then we infiltrated into the northwest uh, uh, of Baghdad. Now that's a fascinating operation because you led a squad of only, how many men was it, 12, 15? Eight men. Only eight, eight men. men? Eight men. And your mission was to go after the Scud missiles. Yeah, basically what was happening at, at that time was, was that Scud missiles were falling on Tel Aviv and, and going right. to Israel. Um, and obviously the plan was certainly from the, the Iraqi side was that if they could bring Israel into the war, the alliance would start to crumble. Um, because all the Arab states who had given grudging support would now pull out. They would pull out, and certainly if you got then Israeli aircraft going into Arab uh, airspace mm -hmm. to go and attack Iraq, the alliance would crumble. It seems that there was a, a two-week window that was given um, uh, by the Israelis that you know, within two weeks, if there's any more scuds that are firing in Israel, Israel will join in the war. So the whole of our emphasis as, as special forces uh, changed from all the things that we were preparing for. We were preparing for uh, the classics or the green options, you know, disruption of communications, um, prime target assassination, disruption of, of supply lines, that sort of thing, behind enemy lines. All that stopped and uh, our pure focus was get out there 
to stop scuds firing in, into uh, into Israel. So well, the scuds were mobile, weren't they? They were. That was the problem. Um, we you know, obviously we're, we're now used to looking at this fantastic technology on our TV, and we got sort of target acquisition that uh, hit targets, you know, within meters. Well, it, it wasn't actually like that um, during the Gulf War. Technology has obviously got a lot better since, but it wasn't as precise as that. And it was very difficult for, for aircraft to identify the mobile scud launchers. So these things are parked up, and within two hours, once the survey's done, they can fire. So our, our job um, as an, this eight-man patrol called Bravo 2-0 was to go to the northwest of Baghdad, um, near the, the border with Syria, and try and cut a fiber optic cable that was giving the information from Baghdad to the mobile scud teams in that area because obviously that was the prime uh, launch sites because they could fire over Syria into into Israel. That fiber optic cable originated where? In Baghdad. So it was the main communications link. It was the only one that was left to the scud commanders. Absolutely, yeah. because all the of the if you like the traditional communication that had mm -hmm. been blown out by now, you know, with all the all the fast jet attacks. Even radio. No, radios were still working, but the, the fact is there was, there was so much uh, counter-electronic yeah. warfare going on that would be jamming signals. It was very difficult for them to... So your task was to cut that cable, not to destroy the individual scuds. No, the, the task, prime task was to cut the cable, because the theory would be was then the, these teams would just be sitting there waiting mm -hmm. for their commands. Sure. Secondary to that, if we saw scud, we had to take them out, right. um, uh, purely because we had to just keep on, not so much the missiles, it was the launchers, because without the launchers, the missiles are redundant. Did you take out any scuds? No, no, we didn't, didn't even to. find a fiber uptake. Yeah. Um, the the rush, the the job was so rushed um, because of this two week window. We the the information we was given was um, about forty percent wrong. So what did you accomplish? Uh, not a lot on the on the mission. We actually failed in the mission of finding the fiber optic cable, yeah. and we failed in the mission of of destroying scuds. What happened? The the patrol um, uh, landed up with the wrong. Uh, communication frequencies, so we were compromised by the Iraqis, by a young, uh, by a young goat herd, a kid. He must have been about five or six years old. We went running off to some anti-aircraft guns that were about 400 yards away from our hide position, yeah. and they'd been there a couple of days. We knew they were there. There was no problem. You were way out of range of any other Allied forces. Oh, absolutely, we were the, the most northern forces of the of the war. We were yeah. nearer Israel than we were. Uh, sorry, we were nearer Syria mm -hmm. than we were um, Saudi. So um, we were on foot because, as a small group, you know, concealment is our biggest weapon. Um, so we would hide up in the day and we'd get out and operate at night. And we'd spent two nights there trying to look for this fiber optic cable, still with no luck. I presume you got in there by an airdrop. Yeah, we got in there by, by helicopter, um, mm -hmm. where we, we went to a drop-off point and then moved off uh, to our, uh, our hide position. That we, we, we had to work from, um, pick one from air charts. Because of the rush of the, of the, the job itself, we, uh, we didn't get the mapping in time. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's all part and parcel of the job. The, the fact is, is that what special forces are about is gaining information. And you did come under Iraqi fire. Yes, we did. Yeah, we we um, uh, we got into contact as we tried to get out of our hide position, and um, by by two uh, armored personnel carriers and a and a, and a, uh, a truckload of, of guys. Just eight men against how many? Um, it it would have been I should imagine about sort of 25, 30 people. Mm -hmm. um, 
the the good thing for us at, at that time was our standard of training as opposed to their standard of training. The fact is that these guys are you know carrying these these Russian-made AK-47 rifles, and they fire big long bursts. You know, the, the first one or two rounds are, are effective. The rest are going all over the place. So it's a matter of us just just keeping our cool and getting on with the job. And certainly when you're in a position like that, in an open flat plains uh, of, of that part of the world, there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. So you've got to stand your ground. How many men did you lose? We lost, in, in, in total at the end, we lost three men. Um, four were captured by the Iraqis, three died, and only one made it to the safety of Syria. Only one? Only one. Apart from yourself? No, we were captured. and, and there was, there was You were one of the captured? I was one of the captured. What happened in captivity? Um, it, quite a lot, really. I was captured about uh, a mile and a half from the Syrian border, hmm. and uh, uh, I was dragged out of a, a drainage culvert, and I could actually see <coughs> the, the, uh, the, the high ground of Syria, and it was sort of so close. What initially happened was that the, the, the soldiers, the Iraqi soldiers that, that, that caught me, and by then I was on my own, and because of the confusion of the contacts with the enemy that night, we were split up around the border. And uh, there was just the initial frustration taken out on me by the soldiers. You know, these guys are getting bombed every night. Um, during the, 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 the time, that the few days that we were trying to get to the border, they'd taken quite a lot of casualties. So they had somebody they can take the frustrations out on. What I've learned um, through listening to people's experiences, as part of our training, we'll listen to, to guys who have gone through those experiences, is just to curl up and take it. There's nothing you can do. Mere beatings, or was there a more extended and more exquisite torture than that. Certainly, at, at that time, there was there was there was there was beatings, there was there was kicks, and there was punches, and I got rifle butt in in the face, mm -hmm. and, and, and my teeth, the rear of the teeth, started to to to, to smash. Um, and eventually, I was taken to a uh, an interrogation center in Baghdad. Um, yeah. These things are purpose built because the the uh, the, the Iraqis had, had fought a war against Iran for for many years, sure. and the system was. Um, uh, very effective because it was the, the the Brits who taught them anyway because the West used to back uh, Iraq in that war. Well, Iraq was a kind of British protectorate at one point in its history. It was. It was. It was. It was a very strange situation because the, the the soldiers who ran the interrogation centre, they were dressed in British Army uniform. Mm -hmm. um, they wore uh, red berets as as part of their parachute regiment, exactly the same. They as even as had British military moustaches. But they certainly did, and even a lanyard to commemorate mm -hmm. a battle they fought with one of the generals Montgomery in the Second mm -hmm. World War against the Germans. It was very very strange for that to see that um, in the interrogation. Um, centers. Uh, the, the interrogations were very sort of physical because of the standard of troops they'd been interrogating during the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and it, it eventually sort of sort of progressed onto um, always being stripped of, of, of clothing, um, always uh, handcuffs were um, always on, always blindfolded. You could never see anybody in interrogation rooms. Um, and by then there was three of uh, three of my patrol, including me, that w was in the interrogation centre. And uh, we were um, uh, at different stages whipped. Um, we were hit with um, planks of sort of four by two wood. Um, I had a, a friction burn on the, the inside of my thigh. And um, there was no electricity or running water in, in, in Baghdad at that time because we were taking sort of uh, attacks every night. So th a spoon was burnt over a paraffin heater and then rubbed into all the of it, Is all of this before? No, the, 
while this is happening, the the invasion action has begun, I'm sure. Yeah, we didn't know that at the time. The invasion action had begun. Um, we we were still getting bombed every night. Um, mm -hmm. We you know we were taking hits in Baghdad. And, yeah, we were getting we were taking hits. What in information were they after from you? Well, it, it initially what it, what it was was for us to say that we were Israelis, um, oh. because as far as they were concerned, we were. We were so close to the border um, with with Syria. Um, they really didn't believe that you were Brits, is that it? No, they didn't in the beginning. And then as we went through the process of interrogation in Baghdad, I, a lot of the interrogators were actually taught at our British military academy. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, the cover story that we, we had were that we were uh, medics, a part of a search and rescue team who would go in to pick up downed pilots. And our helicopter, we got on the ground to look for a downed pilot, the helicopter left. You know, our officer was on board, you know, we don't know where we are, who we are, that, all that confusion. And we would use our own, our own uh, uh, military history as, as the cover story. So I, I, I belonged to an infantry regiment before the, the, I joined the Special Air Service called the Green Jackets. And I was confronted by an interrogator who was trained at our military academy, who knew officers in the Green Jackets. He was a Sandhurst man? He was a Sandhurst man, and he was mm. talking about officers in the Green Jackets, which was really, you know, mm. it, was, it was weird, a weird situation. And you could name those officers, too, and talk absolutely. about them, which established your bona fides as, yes, as a Brit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it then changed from the fact that we're not Israelis. Um, and, and also, th at, at that time, after about three days, um, I don't know why I didn't think about it beforehand, but I remembered, well, I've got a foreskin. Um, and uh -huh. it was that, and it was. I thought, why didn't I think about this before? And so, going through the process of, of, of showing my foreskin. That's interesting. It, yeah, <laughs> and it, you know, it got a laugh, and I actually got some. I got a couple of dates, uh -huh. which was great. <laughs> um, but then the interrogations changed again, and what it was, well, what are you doing here? What was your job? And once you get captured, it, it's you know, your job hasn't finished because what you've got to do is give a window of opportunity for your 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 headquarter element yeah. to to uh, make a threat assessment but meanwhile they're losing the war uh Dave, in, in the in the space of just one week mm. they're being routed uh by schwarzkopf's uh army and uh and they're on that road of whatever they called it the road of yeah, destruction the road of, yeah, road the of, road of death. death and uh i should think that things would have been collapsing in baghdad as well well it was the the Certainly, in the beginning, um, now with hindsight, understanding what was what was going on, a lot of the information what was going on in uh, in Kuwait wasn't getting back to the troops mm -hmm. in Baghdad. Certainly, to the, the the soldiers that were guarding these camps. Um, then at night, what would happen? They would obviously we'd get bombed every night. There would be a lot of anti-aircraft fire every night. All these things were going on. But then, in a lull, there was small arms fire in Baghdad. And um, uh, you know there was something going on in the city. There was you know there, there was things going on, and uh, so what I decided was that the the night we don't get any bombing means that's that must be mm. the end of the war. You know something's happening. So let's go on. It was about another four did, nights. Did they trade you or just send you back as the, after they? No, we was traded. We was traded. Uh, For some of their people. Yeah. What was happening was was that the. The Red Cross didn't know how many prisoners there were, you mm -hmm. know, what national didn't know a thing. The deal was struck that there was two plane loads of Iraqis that were going to come back who needed medical mm -hmm. treatment. And um, there, there was a prisoner exchange. And uh, I was on the, the, the last prisoner exchange. 
I've got to pause. I, you're, this is so fascinating. I'm literally about seven minutes late for some commercials. And we haven't even talked about your uh, second career as a leading uh, novelist doing thrillers similar to the, or at least using the materials of your own experience Absolutely. in SAS. Uh, this one just now on hand, Last Light, is it the third or the fourth? It's the fourth. The fourth. Uh, and they're all uh, Nick Stone stories, aren't yes, they? Yes, yeah. It's all a, a continuation of, of, of his life. Yeah. Nick Stone is your central character, and he's rather like you, I would say. He's, all the good bits are, yeah. All the good bits. <laughs> At any rate, we return to Andy McNabb and something about Nick Stone after these words. As I understand it, Andy, you were just about the most decorated man in the British military service. Is that right? Um, at, the, at the time of leaving the, the special air service, yes, yeah. That testifies to your being uh, willing to put your life on the line and doing some pretty dangerous things. It's 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 a very strange when the the, the whole thing of of sort of uh, decorations and and medals and things mm -hmm. come up. Actually, when when sort of people who get them sit down and analyze it, it's nothing like that at all. You just happen to be somewhere, and uh, what you're trying to do is get out of it, as as opposed to be sort of you know proactive. You've got to be proactive because you want to get it done because you want to get out of it. Um, no, but I imagine, though, you had that kind of gumption which is really either reckless or is, uh, could also be coded as devoted to the larger cause and not too worried about the maintenance of your own life into uh, the 80s or the 90s. I think certainly that... Uh, the In other words, you were ready to die if you had to. It's, well, yeah, I, I, th I think that it's not so much uh, uh, getting ready to die for um, uh, sort of queen and country. It, it, it boils down to getting ready to die for the people that you're sure. with. And that's, yeah. what, that, that's what really, as far as I'm concerned, that's what really matters. Well, that's, what, that's the key to all military Absolutely. performance, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's uh, certainly, as a, as, as a younger man, I was decorated when I was, uh, the first decoration I got was as 19. Mm. And... Um, it was the first time that I'd actually killed somebody. And, uh, you know, as a, as a young man, you're feeling very macho. You know, you've got this big weapon and you've got steel helmets and body armor and all these sort of things. Um, you've done lots of training, you know, how to use weapons. But when somebody's firing at you, um, I found that a lot of that training didn't work. And I was actually very scared. And after the event, um, within sort of the young sort of you know young guys there's there's that macho thing you can't actually tell people that that you were scared number one they don't want to hear it mm. and number two i was slightly embarrassed and it wasn't until i got older and i got into the special air service where people actually spoke about being scared and what i learned was that it's actually natural you know people say they're not scared they're liars or they're mentally deficient what it is is just getting over that fear and getting on with the getting on with the job it would be the rare person who isn't scared when he's facing other people who want to kill him. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's, uh, it, it, you know, it, it does make me laugh now when, when you know, you, you listen yeah. to guys and they're not scared about this. Of course they are. The thing is, is that they don't want to admit it. But you left um, the the military in uh, what year? Ninety-three. In ninety-three. Yeah. Uh, about two years after the completion yes. of the the Gulf War, and magically overnight you turned into a very successful novelist. How'd you do that? It was, yeah, it was, it was most bizarre. I, I basically got out of the military and uh, I was going to work for a private military company, and as most people from mm -hmm. Special Forces do. And um, there was so much conjecture in, in the media uh, in, in the UK and in Europe at that time about this thing, Bravo 2-0, you know, all the stories of if a helicopter got stolen in Kuwait, well, it was Bravo 2-0, you know, a, a power station was, was blown up in, in Baghdad, Bravo 2-0. So well, what was put to me was, look, 
just write the story of, of what happened. It stops all the conjecture. It'll go, you know, the military buffs will buy it, and then it'll die. But what happened was that I'd, I'd done the book, um, still with a, with a plan to go and work for this private military company the following year. And um, the, when Bravo 20 was, was, you know, finally published, um, it, it just exceeded all expectations. It, it sold over a million and a half in the It recounts basically the... Uh, the action in Iraq that you've just been talking about. Exactly, yeah. And that's, yeah. All it, that's all it does, yeah. And then there was another one, another nonfiction, called Immediate Action. Immediate Action. On, on, on the back of the, the, um, uh, the success of Bravo 2.0, uh, what people wanted to know was what was the story behind that. And basically, Immediate Action um, uh, starts when I joined the Army at the age of 16 as a mm -hmm. boy soldier in the infantry. And uh, because I was in juvenile detention, and at that time, the Army was recruiting within uh, the detention centers and you'd obviously you'd be out within four days if you join the army and so that's what I've done um, and the story of my life in, in the you know in the infantry and and then eventually getting into the special air service and what happens but it's quite a jump from that to fiction it is it your is. first fiction was remote control it was right? yeah it was it, what? a big jump how'd you do it um, using the same technique that, that, that I learned uh, by writing the first two uh, uh, two books was just to to do it as as if I'm sitting down and I'm telling a story to somebody, and I still use this, the the same technique now, and I put everything on tape, and then transcribe what I've said and look at it and try and make some sense of it. And um, and what I wanted to do was just to use uh, instances that I've been involved with or other people have been involved with where I've known the outcome, and put them into a uh, uh, in a fictional um, scenario. Were you ever as an operative in SAS, in, uh, dumped into the jungles of Panama? No, I've been to Panama, um, obviously because the, certainly during my time, the, the, the Americans had, had the zone there. But I've, I've been to the, uh, what was then the, uh, the, the jungle school in Panama many times. Oh, you have? Yeah. You understand, of course, why I ask, because in this most recent of the Nick uh, Stone books, uh, Last Light, uh, he winds up trekking through the jungles does. of Panama. He certainly does. It's... Uh, it's basically well. The, the the book is set in in the jungles of Panama, and it's um, basically the you know the hero in there, that Nick Stone. He, he he gets caught in a conspiracy, basically of of Colombian terrorists who want to come up uh, to take control of the Panama Canal, um, Chinese big business that are actually now running the canal, and members of the or certain members of the U.S. intelligence community who want to get back down there and take control of it again for the U.S.A. Did you say Chinese big business is, in fact, in real life, actually running the canal? Oh, absolutely. And then the companies that are actually the, the, the front in the, uh, the, um, uh, the running of the canal, 10% of that is, is run by the, um, uh, the, the, the Chinese government. Yeah, I've read that, and uh, the Washington Times has made a great deal of that. Right. Bill Gertz on the Washington yeah. Times, uh, that uh, during the Clinton years, we sort of allowed the Chinese to um, gain considerable control both of that and also of certain uh, ports on the west coast of the United States. Absolutely. And, and in fact, there, there's even you in think, Europe. You think that's all a correct Yes, yes. Uh, and even in Europe, some of the, some of the, uh, the larger container ports are now run by the, by the same companies. Um, the, the, certainly the, 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 the problem that, that is being perceived about Panama was that, that you know, it's virtually on, on, in your backyard. And there, it's the buffer zone bet between what's happening in South America um, and it's spreading north, um, and uh, it, you know, 
Clinton gave away, or didn't give away, because it was done in many years beforehand, you know, the treaty to, to hand over, over the canal. But there was, there was so much that was given away that, and so much freedom for the Chinese to come in because the Panamanian government didn't have the infrastructure um, to actually run those But we have a lot of influence, I should think, on the Panamanian government, particularly since we took its uh, paramount leader and put him in a jail in Florida. How, how and why have we allowed the Chinese to gain significant advantage uh, over the Panama Canal? Well, that's, a, that's part of the, uh, the book itself about the anger from certain members of the intelligence community about that you know, we've let uh, this happen because you know, still 14% of America's trade passes through the canal, sure. and and it's you know four percent of world trade goes through the canal. Let alone there's sort of it's something like about forty billion dollars worth of infrastructure that America has put into into the zone, whether it be the canal or the 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 the, the camps and the and the. So and this the is not fiction; it's faction. Of a yeah, sort, is it? yeah. What are, what it's it a, a strong factual. Oh, absolutely, basis. absolutely. What it's trying to do is, is obviously make something relevant. Try and use realistic situations that have happened um, either to me or to other people take them out from their you know their their real situations and put them into that story now we have some commercials once again when we return after that let me just once again first say that the title of the new uh, Nick Stone uh, book is uh, lost last light and the publishers are Atari Atari yeah um, so you've got Japanese connections. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Rather than Chinese. <laughs> Chinese, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Is Atari owned by a Jap one of the big Japanese? No, no it's not. No, no, it's, it's Simon Schuster. Oh, it's just Simon yeah, Schuster. Simon Schuster. It's, it sounds like a, it does, like a Japanese it, yeah. name, doesn't it? At any rate, Last Light uh, by Andy McNabb is readily available wherever they sell real books. If you want to get your hands on it quickly, you can just go to our own website and scroll down to tonight's entry on the uh, program guide and you'll see a picture of uh, the front cover. If you click on that, you'll be directly in the hands of Barnes & Noble, who will sell you the book at a uh, significant discount, I'm told. We will, but when we come back, I do want to talk, of course, about uh, SAS, about Delta Force, about our general special forces operations, and what role they are playing in the world right now with regard to the two major threats that we think we face, one, Al-Qaeda, and other forms of Islamic fundamentalist militancy, and two, connected and related, but still a separate question, the Iraqi regime and the coming action, whatever it's going to be, and whether we are already in action with some of our special forces against Iraq once again. So we'll bring this sort of operation up to date with regard to the uh, inimical forces facing us at this moment, and we'll proceed with that with Andy McNabb right after these words. And we return directly to Andy McNabb, veteran of the British SAS. And I do want to ask you about special forces like SAS in the UK and our own Delta Force and uh, those designated as special forces in our own military. What are they up to right now? Uh, for example, with regard to Al-Qaeda and with regard to the hunt, if there is still a hunt going on, for Osama bin Laden, what kind of work would outfits like yours be doing? Well, uh, you know, for sure, there, there, there'll be units out there. There'll be patrols out, out on the ground there in Afghanistan. Um, there's certainly, there's, there's uh, rules now for what they call hot pursuit going into Pakistan. Um, so if, if they're chasing people and they get over the border, they can actually mm. follow them up. 
Certainly during the uh, the uh, Tora Bora campaign, what was happening was that the, the, these were trolls would um, infiltrate in, into the mountains, identify the targets, whether they're human targets or they're actually the, the, the caves themselves, and mark the targets by um, either illuminating them with uh, lasers so that fast jets can come in and, and lay their ordnance or, or B-52, or actually talk in the AC-130s, which are the, the, um, uh, the, the large um, Hercules gunships, and uh, and that's normally done, you know, voice to voice, you know, and you mm. normally know the guy you're talking to because of the liaison. So why haven't we found Osama bin Laden? Well, it's it's a huge country, um, and and the, there's been lots of reports that, that have been going around that, that that he was found, but politics said it wasn't going to happen, or people on the ground, patrols, were said don't take him, but. If he was identified, there was no way any patrol would not take him. And I, and, you know, I don't believe these reports at all. Um, but it's this, these, these sort of wars, or any war, it's not a science. And the, the problem is, is, is that over the last decade, because if we've had this very clinical type of operation where we see virtually video games of attacks now, um, this target acquisition uh, film that we see, and uh, what we're losing mm. is the fact is it's not a science. It's 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 very dirty. It's it's very uh, it, 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 it's very hard, you know, because the the ground's got to be covered. Actually, people with you know just what they're carrying on their back, a good pair of boots, and the weapon they're carrying in their in their hands, mm. got to get into these caves and physically dig these people out. And it's going to take time. It's going to take time. The other man in our in the crosshairs, so to speak, is Saddam Hussein. And one wonders, and the question is raised often by impatient and obvious journalists, uh, why haven't we, if, we're, if, if we are committed to decapitation operations, to use the rather vivid phrase that is now used, why haven't we decapitated Saddam Hussein? Yes, he moves around a lot. Yes, he may have some doubles. Yes, he has 30 different palaces, uh, and he can park at a different one each night. But surely there are ways of penetrating. And there are, and, and there, there's constant probes all the time. Even, you know, the, 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 the six-year period after the, the Gulf War, there was over 15 attempts to kill him. Um, how, well, how close did they get? Uh, not that close, whether they're, they're trying to get, to, to get him via the family or try to get him through the, the inner sanctum. Not that close. The guy, you know, he, he even sort of kills his own brother-in-law because he's suspicious. Mm -hmm. This guy is, is very self-contained. But there's constant probes all the time to try and get to him, because obviously if he can get that out. Um, and trying to buy uh, the loyalties of some of the people around him. Yeah, and th that's always uh, always uh, happening. Also, the you know the largest military uh, campaign and covert campaign um, by the, the Brits and the Americans were, were the Kurds after the, uh, mm -hmm. the, the Gulf War. Unfortunately, that operation went wrong, and we all withdrew and we left the Kurds to it, and that's why the Kurds have gotten gassed. So. Certainly, people within Iraq uh, are quite suspicious. If they're getting approached to to help the West, they're quite suspicious because they've seen what happened with the, with the Kurds beforehand. So it's it's not as easy as it seems. But constant probes continuously. What are your own thoughts? I know that you're uh, sometimes a military consultant to CNN in this country. Yes. What are your own thoughts about what should be done, what will be done concerning Iran? Well, I think that that Saddam Hussein should be got rid of. I think that, that the fact that I personally would rather see it as an assassination as opposed to committing troops on the ground, because we've got to remember that the, you know the the Iraqi army is still a huge enterprise. You know, there's over 2,000 tanks. There's you know over half a million troops there. Um, you know, 
if we went to war, we would defeat Iraq, but at what cost, just to try and get rid of this guy? So I'm, I'm more in favor of, of the, the more covert approach, um, which has been constantly um, uh, 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 trying to attain. And it will happen. Eventually it will happen, whether it's done from these you know, inner sanctum or it's done from the fact that you're going to get special forces guys on the ground. Uh, we can identify where he is and call in those fast jets. You're all for decapitation, but you're also apparently quite gung-ho for an invasion. Not so much for an invasion. I, I, I think that, that it's, it's, it's all well and good having that as, as, as a last resort, but number one, we're going to achieve the aim, and at what cost? Well, the aim can't merely be to kill Saddam Hussein. Uh, if you do that, and uh, his family, the remainder of his family, and the loyal uh, satraps around him will just reinforce his vision, his ideology, and uh, yeah, absolutely, and will grab the corrupt power that he had, and mm. you're back where you started. I think. Yeah, yeah I, I think you are, and I think that, that certainly there was a there was there was a there was a concept um, towards the end of the Gulf War that the fact is if you got rid of uh, Saddam Hussein at that stage, there was more extreme people that, that would fill the, mm -hmm. the vacuum. Um, Purely from a military point of view, I prefer the, uh, an assassination as opposed to an invasion. What happens after that would be purely a, a political uh, decision because you've got to get these guys, you've got to get guys in place who are going to fill the vacuum that will, will do it in a way that is not an extreme and will be sort of pro-West. And, and I'm sure as we're speaking in, in Washington now, there's more money flowing around to all these, these opposition groups, the Iraqi opposition groups, than ever before, trying to get these people on side and ready to fill that vacuum. We've got um, another quick round of commercials, the last one. And also, it's time to invite telephone calls. Anything you'd <clears throat> like to ask of Andy McNabb as a special forces operative or as the author of um, four novels, um, dealing with operations of that sort. Now's the time to make your move and give us a quick call. The number, of course, is 591-7200, 591-7200, the area code 312. And if you are listening on the Internet and want to reach us via email, the email address, extension 720 at tribune.com. Extension 720 at tribune.com. Wouldn't it be great if an SAS man... Um, either still in active service or retired uh, in Sussex, is listening on the Internet <laughs> very early in the morning in the U.K. and were to send us an email. 591-7200, uh, get your calls in quickly. We will return right after this. On that audio archive, the newest entry, and it will, it will be up tomorrow and available for you to link to it and listen to it all over again or hear it for the first time, is our discussion last week with Congressman Henry Hyde. 591-7200 is the number, and here is the first caller. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening, Dr. Rosenberg, and good evening, uh, Andy McNabb. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you. Good. Listen, my question is, when you were a young squatty with the RGJ in Northern Ireland, what were your rules of engagement that you had to, to follow? The, uh, the rules of engagement were, were given on what was called the yellow card. Every, every, every soldier on, on foot patrol had these... It was about a dozen cards of different colours, and, and uh, you know, uh, the, the rules of hot pursuit was the blue card, and the rules of you know vehicle search was a, was a green card. The rules of uh, um, engagement were the yellow card, and basically, um, what would happen was that if you felt that you was in danger, or someone else's life, just not another soldier, but a civilian was in danger, mm -hmm. um, 
what you had to do was, was uh, shout out a warning, um, uh, stop security forces, um, stop or I'll shoot. If the, if the action carried on, the guy who carried on the fire or, or the, you know, started to take on uh, you or the rest of the patrol, then you was able to return fire. Because uh, reading that book, Immediate Action, that was very compelling being were you 17 or 18 at the time. Uh, uh, during the contact where I, where I killed the guy? Uh, no, with uh, your, one of the most um, I don't know, compelling part is you're talking about the mate of yours who was taking down the trick color. Yes, yeah, Nicky Smith, yeah. And you and your writing and your personal reflections upon it, you very pers- it became very personal for you. I think it did because uh, you know, before that, um, all it was was you know, again, young man, and oh, I'm going to Northern Ireland, and it, it's great, you know, and it's you know, you got rifles, you got machine guns, there's helicopters, mm-hmm. but then soon as um, uh, you know, sort of being there when a friend dies, and at the same time, um, you know, the the local population there celebrating as you're trying to you know, get the guy back to the security force base, then it became very personal and. Uh, um, you know, became very angry as opposed to thinking, well, I'm here for six months, I'm saving money, you know, and I'm in Northern Ireland. And one quick thing, do you see a resolution with Northern Ireland? Uh, no, I don't. I, you know, it's been going on for for 600 years. I think that that every time uh, you know a new political party comes into power in the UK, there's these fantastic sort of um, uh, 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 sort of initiatives. Um, it has moved forward certainly in these, these last three or four years, but actually what it doesn't do, uh, what it doesn't do is, is, is a, number one, address the hate that is there, and address the um, the, the uh, equality um, between the, the two communities. You know, the, the sort of the certainly the Catholic community. You know, that they, they do need more social welfare, they do need better housing, they do need these really basic things to to get equality, and then from there then you can progress and, and finally get peace. You know, it's interesting, uh, we did a program here, must be three years ago now, with Mo Molin when she yes. was the uh, uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. And she had with her um, representatives of both the Catholic and the Protestant communities in Northern Ireland. These guys were a little wary of one another, yeah. even though they were practiced politicians, and both in the Stormont, I guess, or whatever. But uh, in general, the view that they were putting forward was we've got over the hump. We are now uh, uh, definitely headed for uh, conciliation and towards an effective uh, government of Northern Ireland, which will pacify both the Protestants and the Catholics, because they're both going to get a good deal of what they want. You don't think that's really happened? No, well, it hasn't happened. I, I think what has happened now is, is, is uh, certainly over the, the last couple of decades, it's been a Catholic community who's been rebelling against the mm. system, against authority. What is happening is because of, of what's seen as so much appeasement to the Catholic community, yeah. mm-hmm. is the Protestants are now rebelling. And uh, a lot of the, the the violence at the moment is coming from the. From yeah, the they were out community. there doing their annual marches the other. Absolutely. Just a few weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. And in a very challenging way. Absolutely. Yeah, more than ever now, um, because they 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 see that there's just too much being given to the, the mm. Catholic community. And again, because politically they're they're trying to get uh, sure. uh, on a piece of paper it looks great, but actually go there and look at it, it's not. If they can't solve it, they're all Irishmen after all. What hope is there ever for settling the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I wonder. Well, exactly. It's it's you know when politicians get together and when these wonderful sweeping statements are made, it it's then it it you know it's made to seem that everything's it's stopped. But you know you you talk to a young Palestinian child, you know a seven-year-old child, he'll probably give you the dates, the the number of deaths, what happened, you know, 
20 years ago, same as an Irish child, they'll do exactly mm -hmm. the same. He'll go back to the 1600s and give you all the dates. Um, it's, in, it's embedded, and, and what we've got to do is, is, is actually give that a quality. Andy, I can't resist. I'm indulging myself in doing something which ordinarily I think I would restrain myself from doing, but you've twice mentioned killing people. Do you, would you allow me to ask you how many people have you killed in your time? Um, it's a, it's a very strange thing. I, it, it's, um, I, I do talk about that, certainly the, the, the first time I killed someone, because I found it sort of a very profound uh, moment. But I actually don't really um, uh, go into, into it in that detail, because it's, it's not about sort of, you know, that sort of... Not you, don't give up, you don't give out that number. No, it, it's, it's, a, it's a personal thing anyway, I think, and it, it's... Um, but you you've, know, you've killed more than two. Yes, I have, yeah. No. yeah. Um, uh, and the way I look at it is, is the fact that it's... Uh, you know, nine out of ten times, you're not there to kill people. What you're doing, you're in a situation. Two two people are in a situation they both want to get out of, and you've got a responsibility to yourself, and you've got a responsibility to the people that you're with. Um, the great words of General Patton: "Your job," he says to the soldiers, "is to kill the bastard who's trying to kill you." Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, a quick last call. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, I would like your Milt. I'd like your guest to comment on the Gulf War syndrome that we hear about. Uh, in the papers and, and things like that also coming back now recently from Afghanistan, from special forces. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the Gulf War syndrome uh, does exist. Um, we've certainly in the UK, we've, we have sort of many pressure groups from, from the veterans trying to get the, the government to, to, to uh, compensate. And I think it's due to some sort of chemical poisoning? Yes, yes. I, I think it's more of a health and safety issue than, than it, it, it is more of a psychological sort of issue because there's, mm -hmm. you know, through many different ways, you know, post-traumatic stress exists. But I think if you're looking at the Gulf War syndrome, there's, you know, depleted uranium that are in the, in the, in the warheads, certainly in tank ammunition. People are being exposed, and people are suffering. Um, and I, I, you know, and I think that these people do need compensate, and they do need the help that that they deserve as well. Um, Our thanks to the caller. Time is very short. You know, we haven't yet mentioned you are doing a book signing tomorrow. I certainly am. And that's um, where and when? Well, it's uh, in fact no, it's on Wednesday at 12:30. It's at Borders Downtown. Borders Downtown. That would be 150 North State Street, State I Street, believe. Yeah. Uh, this Wednesday at 12:30. Uh, you'll be available to sign these books? Absolutely. I suppose you'll be talking a bit about the book. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in the one minute or so we have left, how do you see the rest of your career? You're still on the young guy, what, 42, 43? Yeah, just, uh, just then coming up 44. Mm -hmm. um, it's things, things have, have, have been good. The, the, the books, the, um, uh, the thrillers, of, of the, uh, the options have been bought by Miramax, and we're in, in the process so now of... They're all going to be filmed as well. Absolutely, yeah. The, the, uh, the, the second one in the series, Crisis 4 at the moment, is, is being turned into a script, and mm -hmm. that process is, is going on. Um, you could play yourself. It's... <laughs> I don't think so. It's, Why not? Uh, no, I don't think I could be an actor at all. I think I'm too self-conscious. It's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I find it quite interesting behind the camera now, looking at things. Um, no way I'd want to get in front of one. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a good process. I'm, I'm enjoying the process of watching a book being turned in, in, into film. And there's a, a, a couple of uh, Xbox games that are, that are being developed at the moment, and I've got involved in that with the, the motion capture. You get these sort of spray-on suits with sensors on, and you go into one of these studios. And I never quite understand any of that. No, nor do I. No, I know it's, it's done. It's good yeah. fun. It's been a great pleasure having you here. And thank you very thank much you. for the visit. Uh, once again, the new Nick Stone novel is... Uh, titled Last Light, and it's published by Atari, uh, and it is, of course, by our guest during the second hour, Andy McNabb. Um, 
things to come. Uh, tomorrow and Wednesday, we are preempted by Cubs baseball. Uh, I don't know whether those are 7.30 games. They're 9 o'clock games, and so we will not be here at all. Uh, but the Cubs will be cleaning up on the West Coast one way or another. Thursday night, we're back live debating the Chicago airport issue with two of the leading players. And Friday, again, we are preempted by baseball. Next week, interestingly, this rather relates to some of what we've been doing tonight, we're uh, joined by another great expert on war, the novelist Tom Clancy. And uh, we're also doing a quite separate program on the art of cooking. But uh, all of that is uh, things to come. Right now, what is to come is termination. We thank all of you for listening, and we'll be back again with you live on Thursday. <laughs>